or before we look at that Bible passage together, please join me in praying for God to be with us. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we learn from the first chapter of the Bible that when the world was formless and chaotic, you brought order to it by your word. Please, this morning, would you similarly bring order through your word to our often formless lives and our often chaotic hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. J. Gresham Machen was the founder of Westminster Seminary, just north of Philadelphia. It will celebrate its centenary later this decade. It's been a very influential and faithful seminary. In 1936, during the seminary's Christmas break, J. Gresham Machen traveled from Philadelphia to the icy plains of North Dakota for a preaching tour. While he was there, he contracted pneumonia. And on New Year's Day, 1937, Machen died at the relatively young age of 55. On the day of his death, he sent a telegram from his hospital bed in Bismarck, North Dakota, to his friend John Murray, who was one of his colleagues at Westminster Seminary. The telegram said, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. Those were Machen's last recorded words. I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. That phrase, the active obedience of Christ, is a way of talking about Jesus Christ's entirely righteous life. I expect we'd all agree that it's very important that Jesus lived a sinless life. And if we gave it some thought, we'd probably agree that there's no hope without it. But I wonder if we see how central Jesus Christ's obedient life is for our salvation. My hope is that by the end of our time in Genesis 18, we'll grasp the centrality of Christ's active obedience. My hope is we'll see why Christians might well enter into eternity praising God for that particular truth, just as J. Gresham Machen did. In Genesis 18, Abraham has visitors, three men, arrive at his tent in the heat of the day. And Abraham understands that these three visitors represent God. They are God's spokesmen. Take a look at verse 25. By this time, two of the visitors have left, but one is still there. And at the end of verse 25, Abraham says to him, Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? the judge of all the earth. That's God. Abraham knows he's speaking with a being who represents God, who speaks for God. And Abraham hasn't got the wrong end of the stick because all through the passage, from verse 1 onwards, the inspired narrator refers to these visitors as the Lord. You can see that in verse 1. Lord in uppercase letters is how English Bibles translate God's personal name, Yahweh. 
So Abraham is right to think that God is paying him a visit. It's worth saying that elsewhere in Genesis, there are other examples of human beings speaking with God, such as Hagar in chapter 16 and Jacob in chapter 32. And the Bible explains that, strictly speaking, both Hagar and Jacob are interacting with angels, messengers sent by God. And that's what's happening here in Genesis 18. God has sent three angels and God speaks with Abraham through these angels. What they say is what God says, which is why Abraham can speak to them as if he is speaking directly to God. Well, as we've seen, Abraham understands that these are no ordinary visitors. If angels sent by God came to your apartment at lunchtime, I wonder what you'd give them to eat. It wouldn't seem quite right to serve up peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, would it? You'd go full Gordon Ramsay. And that is what Abraham does with the help of Sarah and a servant. I'll read from verse 6. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three sayers of fine flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. After they've eaten, the angels deliver their message. We can divide the news they bring from God into two separate news stories. The first news story is news of a promised descendant. News of a promised descendant. In verse 10, the Lord says to Abraham, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now that is stunning news. It is news of a miraculous divine intervention. And we'll get on to the miraculous aspect of the news in a moment. But first we should remember there are 17 chapters of Genesis before this chapter. And to understand the significance of this news of a promised descendant, we need to factor in the previous 17 chapters. Let's do that quickly. In Genesis 1, God creates the world and God sees all that he's made and it's very good. In Genesis 2, God places the first man and the first woman in the Garden of Eden where all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that are pleasing to the eye and good for food. Just one tree is out of bounds. But in chapter 3, the first humans disobey God and eat from that forbidden tree. It's a shattering act of rebellion. Adam and Eve's rebellion brought physical death to humanity. For dust you are and to dust you will return. And it also brought spiritual death to humanity. As God had warned, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Spiritual death means being dead to God, estranged from God, walking, talking, living, breathing, sure, but not living in relationship with the Creator. And since relationship with God is true life, life as it's meant to be lived, to be spiritually dead is to be a walking corpse. The story of humanity could have ended there in Genesis chapter 3, but one verse offers hope. Genesis 3 verse 15. God is speaking to the snake, the tempter, the devil, and he says, I will put 
enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, he will strike your head. You will strike his heel. He will strike your head. Those five words are saturated with hope. They ooze hope. Striking the tempter on the head was exactly what Adam and Eve had failed to do in Eden. But one of their descendants will manage to do it. Through him, humanity will rise again, overcoming Satan and all the outcomes of his tempting. He will strike your head. Through the victory of that he, humanity will rise from the dead. Between chapter 3 and chapter 18, that future victory is kept in view. In Genesis 12, the promise develops. We're told in Genesis 12 verse 3 that all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. He's the one through whom the promise will be kept. Abraham himself isn't the conqueror of the devil. That becomes clear during his stay in Egypt when he gives in to temptation in a number of serious ways. But humanity's saviour will be one of Abraham's descendants. Abraham is the channel through which blessing and salvation will come. Verse 18 in our passage today echoes the divine promises given back in Genesis 12. Please look down to verse 18 towards the bottom of page 12. God says, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. Abraham is the channel through which salvation will come. That nation made up of Abraham's descendants will produce the savior. And his victory over evil, the savior's victory, will bring eternal hope to a world blighted by sin. But from the moment Abraham and his wife Sarah are introduced to us in Genesis, we're confronted by the problem of their childlessness. How can Abraham be the channel through which salvation comes if he and his wife can't have children? You can't have a nation of descendants without at least one descendant to start things off. That's the tension we've been dealing with ever since chapter 12. In last week's passage, chapter 17, God assured Abraham that his wife Sarah would give birth to a child. God even told Abraham the name of the child, Isaac. And here in chapter 18, God confirms that message. In verse 10, he says to Abraham, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. One reason why that message needs to be repeated is because Sarah herself hasn't yet taken it to heart. Verse 10 says that Sarah was listening from inside the nearby tent, just tucked behind the tent flaps, I suppose, when she hears those words about having a son this time next year, she laughs and says to herself, after I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Well, that shows God's message to Abraham in the previous chapter hasn't yet got through to Sarah. It's possible Abraham never told her, or it's possible he told her and she didn't believe him. Certainly her laughter there in verse 12 is sceptical laughter. She's like a basketball fan who's told that the New York Knicks will win 
next season's NBA title. Most basketball fans would laugh at you in disbelief if you told them that. And Sarah comes out with the same kind of disbelieving laughter in verse 12. We can tell it's that kind of laughter from what follows. Look at God's reaction in verses 13 and 14. Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? And say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? That last line only makes sense if Sarah has been laughing in a sceptical way. But it's easy for us to see why Sarah found it so hard to believe that she would be with child. She's now past the age of childbearing, we're told in verse 11. Abraham and Sarah came to Canaan because of God's promise that Abraham would become a great nation. But they arrived in Canaan 24 years ago, and since then, nothing but barrenness. No child, which meant no nation, which meant no promised saviour. That was Abraham and Sarah's situation for 24 years. The equivalent amount of time for us would take us back to 1997, when Bill Clinton was president. And the twin towers of the World Trade Center were still standing. In 97, the total value of China's economy was less than Germany's economy, less than Britain's economy, less than Italy's economy. China's economy is now more valuable than all those three economies put together. In 97, Elton John was top of the charts, and Batman and Robin, starring George Clooney, was in movie theatres. The world was a very different place 24 years ago. 24 years is a long period of time. It explains why Sarah is sceptical, and it raises the question, why would God make Abraham and Sarah wait for so long? Perhaps you're waiting for a particular development in your own life. And you're asking that same question. Why is God waiting me wait, making me wait for so long? Why is God making me wait for so long? Well, God in his wisdom has reasons for his timings, reasons we may never know or understand in this life. But in Abraham's case, Romans chapter 4 helps us understand why God kept him and Sarah waiting for so long. Romans 4 specifically addresses Abraham's wait for the promised child, and verse 16 says, The promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace. The promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace. In other words, Abraham had to learn that he couldn't make the promise come true by his actions and resourcefulness. No, his role was to trust in the promise. His role was faith. Romans 4 speaks of the deadness of Sarah's womb. Abraham's only hope was to trust in God, who's described in Romans 4 as the God who gives life to the dead. So why did God make Abraham wait for 24 years, Romans 4 fills us in, it was to teach Abraham to trust in the God who gives life to the dead. And that's a whole Bible principle. 
trusting in God who gives life to the dead. Listen to these glorious words from Ephesians 2. God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Put briefly, we can't save ourselves, we need God to give life to the dead. Salvation is God's gift to a dead world. Trusting in the God who gives life to the dead is a whole Bible principle. Well, it's time for us to move on to the second of the two news stories brought by Abraham's visitors. We've been thinking about news of a promised descendant. The second news story that the visitors bring is news of a planned destruction. News of a planned destruction. Please look down with me to verses 20 and 21. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Now Abraham knew about Sodom and Gomorrah. His nephew Lot lived in Sodom. Abraham knew that when the Lord went down to inspect those cities, he would find the reports of their wickedness were accurate. And so Abraham instantly understands that destruction is on the agenda. And he begins pleading with God to show mercy. For 10 verses, Abraham tries to persuade God not to destroy the city of Sodom. He concentrates on Sodom, never mentioning Gomorrah, which is probably because Sodom is where his nephew Lot lives. And Lot is in his thoughts during this back and forth with God. Abraham longs for Lot and Lot's family to be spared. First, Abraham gets God to agree to spare the city if he can find 50 righteous people in it. Then Abraham keeps lowering the number of righteous people required for God to show mercy to Sodom. Abraham lowers the number from 50 to 45, then to 40. Then he saves a bit of time by jumping down 10 to 30, then another 10 to 20 before finally landing on 10 in verse 32. Let's look down, please, to verse 32. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. Now, throughout this dialogue, Abraham is concerned about the fate of the righteous people in Sodom. He doesn't want them to be caught up in the destruction that wicked people have brought upon their city. You can see Abraham's thinking in verse 25, where Abraham says to God, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. But both Abraham and God recognize 
that by sparing the righteous, God would also spare the wicked. The wicked would receive God's mercy. The presence of some righteous people among the many wicked would safeguard the wicked. Look at God's answer in verse 26. The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. I will spare the whole place. That's a lot of wicked people spared for the sake of 50 righteous people. And as we've seen in verse 32, God agrees not to destroy the city if just 10 righteous people are found there. So this dialogue between Abraham and the Lord establishes a precedent that we need to take note of. God is willing to spare many wicked people for the sake of some righteous people. The presence of just 10 righteous people would be enough to save the whole city. Plot spoiler. God can't find 10 And so the city is destroyed. As we'll see in Genesis 19 next Sunday, the angels essentially yank Lot and his family out of Sodom before it's destroyed. There's a verse in chapter 19 that says, God remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. God knew that righteous Lot had been on Abraham's mind and he graciously pulled Lot out of Sodom in time. When we look ahead to chapter 19 and the destruction of Sodom, we can't help asking the question, why did Abraham stop at 10? In verse 32, Abraham stops at 10. He leaves things there. What would have happened if he jumped down one more level and said to God, what if only one righteous person is found in the city? How would God have replied? Would he have said, for the sake of one righteous person, I will not destroy it? We know from elsewhere in the Bible that Lot, like Abraham, is considered righteous in God's sight. 2 Peter chapter 2 describes Lot as righteous Lot. So there was one righteous person in Sodom. Would God have spared the whole city for the sake of that one righteous person if only Abraham hadn't stopped at ten and gone on to one? Well, it's a tantalizing question. And I don't think it's a question we can actually answer because Sodom and Gomorrah were particular places at a particular time and God's purposes within human history can't always be interpreted or predicted. We can't say for sure how God would have responded if Abraham had gone down to one. The answer to that question remains misty but we can hold on to the principle that God is willing to spare many wicked people for the sake of some righteous people. That principle isn't misty. It shines out of the mist. God is willing to spare many wicked people for the sake of some righteous people. It's a principle that reveals God's merciful character. And when we take that principle and meditate on it, we find that is the story of salvation history. God spares the wicked for the sake of the righteous. The Bible says, 
God justifies the wicked. That's Romans 4 verse 5. He justifies the wicked. He makes them righteous. And he does that because of one righteous person, his son. He came down from heaven and was made man. Jesus, the son of God, lived a perfectly obedient life. He was righteous. And when he died on the cross as an innocent sacrifice, he took the sins of wicked people upon himself so they could be forgiven. That's the good news of the Christian faith. We've heard it so often. Perhaps now and again we ask ourselves, can it really be true? Does the Bible really teach that God justifies wicked people like you and me? Maybe that's just the invention of those 16th century reformers over in Europe. And then we turn to Genesis chapter 18 and we find that God is willing to spare many wicked people for the sake of some righteous people. As I said, we can't be sure how God would have responded if Abraham had gone down to one in the particular case of Sodom. But when we look at the whole of human history, we can be sure that God shows many wicked people mercy for the sake of one righteous person, his son Jesus. For the Son of Man, Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God spares many wicked people because of Jesus, one righteous person. It's only because of the salvation that would later be provided by Jesus that the likes of Abraham and Lot are treated as righteous here in Genesis chapters 18 and 19. Go back just a few chapters to Genesis 12 and you'll find Abraham sinning grievously in Egypt. In chapter 13, Lot acts sinfully when he chooses to leave the promised land. In chapter 16, Abraham acts sinfully towards Hagar. Abraham and Lot receive righteousness as a gift because of their faith in the promises of God and God's ultimate promise. The promise that makes sense of all the other promises is his promise of a saviour. It's been said that there have only ever been two revolutionaries, Adam and Jesus. Adam rebelled against God's rule in the garden. Jesus led a revolution against the powers of darkness in this world. By nature, we're all in Adam, on his team, foot soldiers in his rebellious revolutionary army. But through faith, we can join in with Jesus' righteous revolution. Have you yourself done that yet? Have you joined Jesus' revolutionary army? In Adam, you'll be engulfed by sin, and that will lead to God's punishment after death. In Christ, you'll take part in his revolution going on in this world, and you'll live with him forever in the perfect world to come. Come to Christ if you haven't already done so. Come to him today. Those of us already in Christ have received life through him. On the basis of Christ's righteousness, God has given life, real life, to dead people like you and me. 
When God gives life to the dead, he gives real, abundant life, the kind of good life described in verse 19 of today's passage. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. That's the life we've been saved for, doing what is right and just in fellowship with God, loving fellowship with him. The world often thinks of Christians as super square. And uh, by the world's standards, we usually are. But in truth, from God's point of view, we are the revolutionaries. During the coming week, let's live out the revolution. Let's not live as if we're still in Adam. We are in Christ. As we heard at the start, when J. Gresham Machen was lying on his deathbed, he sent a telegram to a friend saying, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. In light of Genesis 18, we can see why Machen drew such comfort from Christ's obedience. We're wicked people who deserve punishment, but God spares us because of one righteous person. Through him, through Jesus, God gives life to the dead. Let's pray to God now. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for the life we have, this fullness of life we have in Jesus Christ through our trust in him. Thank you that he welcomes us into union with him. We thank you for all that he did to achieve our salvation. And in particular this morning, we thank you for his righteous life, his perfectly obedient life. He was a truly righteous person in this world. And because of him, through him, you have spared us. We give you thanks. We pray that any here still in Adam, not yet in Christ, not yet trusting in Christ, would come to him even today by your power. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.